Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by a recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. I'm Sam Andrew. And I'm Alvin Tejo. And today we're going to be going through all of this week's news from the province's powers to take over long-term care homes and growing cries for an inquiry, to the federal assault rifle ban, to Doug Ford falling short of his own rhetoric with a Mother's Day visit that may have exceeded the emergency order, to a message from Stephen Lecce calling on school boards to reschedule prom. Lots of stuff going on right now. I will say that the province dropping its here's how we're going to reopen stuff is not something we're going to cover in detail we'll punt that to a future pod we just didn't have time to do it justice really but first if you haven't heard it yet we did our second book club this week with author david mosscroft about how our relationship with democracy is in trouble but it might still be salvageable but we really got to start doing a lot of stuff soon um so if you haven't it's our second book club, and I, I, I was really happy with how it turned out. Yeah, I thought it was great, Chris. It was a weird book because, like, you start reading it, and you're like, oh, shit, we're in huge trouble. And then he gives you all the stuff we can do at the end, and you're, like, feeling hopeful. And then you remember how hard it is getting people excited about, like, working on democracy. Yeah, which is too bad. He's got some great ideas. Yeah, no, absolutely. When this is all all done, uh, Citizens Assembly, top of my list. Diving in, we're going to start today talking about long-term care. Um, while it is genuinely good news that COVID-19 has not been as devastating in Ontario as some had feared going into this on a province-wide basis, it has in many ways exceeded our worst fears in our long-term care homes. At the time of recording, the data shows that there have been 1,765 COVID-19-related deaths in Ontario. 1,269 of those have been residents in long-term care homes, the vast majority. This is something that stood out as the biggest tragedy so far of the crisis. And while there are are some that might be tempted to look at this and say, well, the virus impacts older people and spreads easier in close quarters, so that kind of makes sense. There are big systemic issues in long-term care that need to be examined. Thanks to some amazing reporting by the Toronto Star, we now know that while not-for-profit and for-profit nursing homes are equally as likely to be hit with COVID-19, the outcomes for patients at for-profit homes are far worse, up to four times worse. So you are more than four times likely to die if you're at a for-profit home than a not-for-profit. This has been mainly attributed to a more precarious workforce due to reliance on low wages and seasonal work in for-profit homes, less personal protective equipment available for them, um, and just less resources in general. And this is the case because while all homes receive the same amount of government funding, uh, for-profit homes use part of that money to pay their shareholders while also caring for people. So all of this has led to a call for a public inquiry by the NDP and the Liberals. And Ford has sort of dipped his toe in the water, suggesting this could be a thing that happens, saying everything will be reviewed top to bottom. Uh, the province then, uh, later in the week, invoked an emergency order that will allow it to take over management of long-term care homes, public or private, and install uh, basically provincial management. So, guys, what do you think the provincial government should do here short-term and long-term? Short-term, I think they're doing the right thing by uh, belatedly stepping in and saying they're going to um, install management if necessary and take a heavier hand. The uh, government waited too long in Ontario to uh, attack the issue of the workforce in long-term care homes working across multiple sites. And this is because so much of the work is casual because uh, these places are run on uh, so, so little money. A lot of people who work in long-term care homes have to work at multiple facilities in order to cobble together a full-time amount of pay, which still is quite low. Uh, and so you you inevitably have this huge um, population of people who are working in multiple homes spreading disease from one home to another. Uh, and um, that when that was realized, I think the government just 
took way too long to try to put a stop to that. It's a very complicated thing to unwind when you've created a system that does this because you have to go back. You have to figure out where everybody should be working. You have to try to reallocate them. You have to then try to make sure that all the care hours actually add up at each different site. It's incredibly time intensive. It's a huge undertaking for for a health system to do, um, and it requires some real central planning. Um, but it's key, as we've seen, to um, to maintaining you know good public health outcomes in this sector, which is so clearly so vulnerable, uh, as we've seen, unfortunately. And it's too bad that we had to learn this lesson the hard way that, you know, maybe if we provided beforehand full-time jobs for people working in one long-term care home, so they had a, a good job where they could make enough money working at one site, they didn't have to go to two or three different ones on different days of the week, then we wouldn't have as many deaths. I mean, it's it's that simple. Yeah. And I, I mean, I thought the NDP's call for a public inquiry into this was smart politics, it sort of sets the bar at, you know, a place where the government won't want to reach to, but I think they'll undoubtedly cave to that in short order because now every conversation about long-term care is going to be, why haven't you agreed to the public inquiry? So I just like kudos to the NDP, I think, um, for the politics on that. You know, public inquiry or not, there's no easy answer to the problems plaguing the sector. They require massive public investment and really no party in the last 30 years has prioritized that kind of investment that's needed um, to meet the demand. Alexi mentioned the the workforce. I think it goes beyond just sufficient pay. There's not sufficient benefits. There's no retirement security for most of these uh, workers. And so at the end of the day, it's going to need more public investment. The role of home care, I think, is one where um, there's not enough public investment in at-home nursing, doctors, respite care to avoid people having to go to these homes in the first place. Um, and then, obviously, the role of the private sector in delivery, I think, um, will be part of the conversation. I think this government will probably undoubtedly resist any calls for um, real change in that regard. Um, and um, the private sector has evaded, you know, strict regulation before, but at least if the regulations and enforcement of those regulations can improve, the incentive structures around some of these private homes can be weakened. But it's a mess, as I think Premier Ford called it. And it, I think this will be a wake up call for everybody. I was just going to say, I mean, I don't know how they don't have a public inquiry at this point. There was only 44 deaths when we had SARS and we had a public inquiry. And that actually led to a number of reports that I think prepared us, uh, Ontario especially, for uh, responding to the pandemic this time around. Uh, so I think it's important for the province to have that inquiry and also use it as a tool to better prepare the province for the next time this happens. And I don't know why they wouldn't just admit that they need to do that. I, I don't think they have to admit fault necessarily, but they want to get to the bottom of it. And that's sort of been the right tone that they've had all along. I think there are some other, as you've mentioned, Sam, systemic issues with long-term care facilities. But while we're in the middle of Nurses Week right now, I think it's good to highlight that there are a lot of nurses who end up working and personal support workers and uh, nurse practitioners who end up working in long-term care facilities who don't love working there. I mean, some of them do. I'm sure some of them enjoy it. But between my wife, who's a nurse, my sister and my mother-in-law, some of them have had some of experience in um, long-term care facilities or home care. And they say it's not a desirable place for a lot of healthcare workers to work because they feel that it's understaffed, it's under-resourced. Um, you're, you're dealing with uh, a lot of people who have a lot of issues and uh, because you're not in a hospital environment and you're and you're dealing with uh, an el elderly and vulnerable population, that it's actually pretty, 
pretty trying on that uh, on on that group of people. So you end up getting a lot more burnout and a lot more turnover and people who are just trying to make ends meet and they're uh, you know going from one center to another center. So I think there's a lot of serious issues that we're having with long-term care facilities anyway um, that we need to basically figure out how we're going to improve those working conditions and living conditions for the people who have to be there. I mean, I can't really add much more onto it than what has already been said, but I do wonder how this moment will change people's attitudes towards long-term care or if it will, because it has just taken us so long to focus on this. Um, When I was... uh, diving into this, <laughs> the first thing that comes up if you Google long-term care inquiry is not the current news, but the long-term care inquiry that was completed this year as a result of the eight seniors killed in Woodstock by uh, that nurse who was uh, basically serial killing residents. And the commission examined, uh, did a system-wide review, and it was scoped very differently than what we're discussing here, but it found that there were strained and systemic issues that led to somebody being able to commit these kinds of crimes in a nursing home that she would have never been caught had she not confessed to them herself. Um, interestingly, uh, it focused on the question of regulation and said that they like like increased regulation without increased resources could actually make things worse because folks are already struggling with limited resources to meet the regulatory and accountability requirements that are already there. Um, and that prior to any of this COVID-19 stuff happening, the system was strained, but it was not broken. And I kind of wonder, like, this is just such another major cataclysmic event in that sector that I um, I do wonder if it's you know, this might finally be the thing like you guys that makes us wake up and take it seriously because we clearly haven't for so long. So maybe moving on to uh, something also uh, decently serious, uh, but not related to COVID. <laughs> Alexi, you put it out here to say, remember when the news was about more than one thing? Uh, and yeah, I kind of miss those days. Those um, were the days, guys. Uh, there was so much variety. It, it, it's amazing, you know, how just everything, everything relates to a virus now. Uh, but anyway, as a response to the recent mass shooting in Nova Scotia, Justin Trudeau announced that 1,500 models and variants of semi-automatic assault rifles will be banned in Canada following a two-year transition period during which governments will institute a buyback program expected to cost many hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, depending on take up. Municipalities will also be allowed to restrict or ban handguns at a local basis. The Liberals have been hinting at stronger gun control measures for a while now after dragging their feet on the last mandate and taking it up during the uh, last election campaign. But critics have gone after the announcement on a whole number of angles. On the left, many have pointed out that the ban does not apply to all semi-automatic assault rifles, only to, I guess, the 1,500 common varieties. I don't know. I I guess there are more than 1,500 varieties of assault rifle um, existing in this world. Uh, that's kind of crazy to me. Others note that handguns kill and wound many more people. So why not make those illegal as well? Predictably from the right, uh, Doug Ford has weighed in to say that the buyback is a waste of money and it could be spent in better ways. There's, of course, the, the gun enthusiasts aren't happy about this. But, you know, this is sort of a long time coming. Uh, what do you think about the substance and the politics of the ban? Maybe I'll start with the politics. I think all of the conservative response from uh, Andrew Scheer and the federal um, conservative candidates to Queens Park with Doug Ford to Alberta went exactly how the liberals would have wanted, which is they spoke to their base who um, has much higher rates of gun ownership than the other political parties and have some, I think, 
relevant criticisms of uh, the move um, that the Liberals announced. But to the 75% of Canadians who would never think about owning a gun, all it sounds like is we love guns uh, and we want to defend guns. And that sounds just crazy to most people. So I think the politics is really tough for them. Um, I am not an expert in gun policy. I can only really comment on what I've read. I think there's, you know, good arguments on both sides about the efficacy of the buyback um, versus, say, as Doug Ford said, spending that money on um, other uh, efforts related to handguns or or border control or whatnot. Um, But again, to most normal people who have never thought about owning a gun, they think, why not both? Why are there guns at all? Right. And so um, I think it's a tough issue for conservative politicians. I mean, I think what's interesting there, Sam, is that 75% of Canadians, and I saw a poll as high as 80% of Canadians say that they were in favor of this move, which goes to show you that a majority, that not a majority, but a significant number of conservatives also support more gun restrictions. So it's not like this is completely within their bailiwick politically to to run away with. The piece on on handguns is, is interesting because they said they wanted to do more by allowing municipalities. I don't know that they're not just waiting for another moment to essentially stand up and, and make some sort of declaration on handguns as well. I don't know if it wouldn't just be easier at this point to say what uh, what guns are legal versus what guns are no longer legal to be owned here in Canada and 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 in what circumstance you're allowed to use them because there as gun owners will tell you there's already a lot of restrictions as it is but you know this this is this is I think an important piece that the the liberals were going to take a bold stance on one that they promised uh, in the last election that they were finally able to push through I'm glad they're doing it it's certainly gotten the attention of of a lot of people not just in Canada but around Canada I had I was on a Zoom call with a number of Americans the other day who said congratulations on banning uh, assault rifles in Canada. They're paying attention to that. So I think this is definitely within what you would expect the Liberal government to do, where they are successfully putting people on opposite sides of the argument and know that they're going to be in the right with the majority of their own voters. So I think probably a very good political move for them. Yeah, I agree with all that in that it's a, a very good political move. I think my my journey on this topic, uh, I started out among those, very clearly among those 75% of people who were just like, well, obviously we should do this. This is great. Um, good move. Pat on the back, government. The problem is the more I read about how it's actually going to work, the less I feel good about the policy of it and the more it feels like just more of a crass uh, wedge issue, which still will benefit the liberals in exactly the way we've talked about. But it kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth uh, when you know the government talking points are all about how we're banning assault weapons. The international press, certainly, as you said, Alvin, picked it up and they just they ran with it. It's like, look, Canada's doing so much better than the US. I mean, that was it was very clear. But the problem is that, as Chris said in the intro, uh, there are actually more varieties of semi-automatic assault rifles, which have not been banned. And so while these 1500 are, in fact, the most common varieties, and, and many of them are just very slight variations on uh, you know a few main varieties that can come in all kinds of different shapes and forms. And so as a result of that, you get this list of 1500 when actually many of them are, are very, very similar. But if you don't ban all of them, if you don't make a ban based on some something about the gun that, that exists outside of individual varieties, all you're going to do is basically just shift the market over time. I mean, if I can still go out and buy another gun that does exactly what the gun I have right now does, I just can't have the gun I have right now. Over time, people will make that shift. So I guess it it just feels kind of that the government's rhetoric was way, way ahead of where the policy that they're actually introducing would justify in terms of calling this a true ban. It's a a partial ban on, on certain common varieties. 
uh, and it's not based on anything about the actual guns. To your point earlier, Sam, why don't they just do both? Or why don't they do the things that legal gun owners are telling governments to do as well, which is just throw the book at the people who are found with illegal uh, illegal weapons, right? Why not change the criminal code a bit so that those legal gun owners don't feel like they're being attacked for what is essentially their hobby? Because you hear them saying, why not you know, really go after the gangs and whoever else, uh, I don't know what Doug Ford likes. What does he like to call them? Gang bangers. Gang bangers. <laughs> um, gang bangers. Yeah. That, you know, to go after them go after organized crime, you could do that. Still do that. Still do the, um, still do the assault rifle ban, still do all these other things and really, really not just crack down in terms of the political benefit, but also I think the policy that can see other countries uh, implementing like uh, New Zealand and Australia and, and how effective those have been as well. There's there's still more that we could do here. Alvin, you're absolutely right. The other piece of this is that uh, governments in Canada, unlike in other countries, which many Canadians might not know, um, have gone after uh, the size of magazines. And so we already, already have some pretty good, uh, well-justified restrictions on uh, how many bullets you can have in one of these guns at a time. And so while I 100% support reducing the number of semi-automatic assault, assault, assault rifles out there are actually I support getting rid of all semi-automatic assault rifles. The the problem, it's justified as a critic to say, well, you're actually going at this from various angles and you may be making this sort of problem out to be a bigger thing that you're solving than really you are. If in fact, it's true that the handguns are really killing and wounding more people that although semi-automatic assault rifles, especially in the US, are high on people's consciousness as a gun that's used in a lot of crimes, often these are illegally uh, purchased or often these are illegally purchased. And so... Again, it's sort of, as we've said, there's this huge issue around guns that touches on all kinds of different aspects. And this is a very good political one that sort of picks up on a popular conception in society about the role of these assault rifles. But what it actually does to make people any safer is is questionable. Like I think oftentimes in policy, we make this delineation between um, or in even just the public debate around guns between illegal guns used by gangs for crime and legal guns that are sort of lumped in sports and hobbying and all that kind of stuff. But those guns that are equally dangerous, uh, you know, in the hands of someone who goes nuts or, um, you know, there's a lot of domestic violence and suicide implications to this policy as well. So I am uh, firmly in the camp of let's ban like as many guns in as many ways as we possibly can. Um, the other thing I want to, uh, I, I had a fun quip earlier about uh, Doug Ford's use of gangbanger and his uh, potential involvement in organized crime in uh, his high school and post high school years. <laughs> alleged, alleged, <laughs> alleged, <laughs> alleged. <laughs> it was a, a really natural quip there. Um <laughs> Moving on to some lighter news. Premier Doug Ford has been riding high in public opinion and sentiment since the start of COVID-19, seeming to be rising to the occasion of encouraging good behavior during this crisis. That is until two reports emerged over the last two weeks that he, A, went up to his cottage over uh, the weekend, uh, one weekend. Now, he has clarified that he went alone to check on some pipes. He did not stay the night and came back. But it seems weird, given his repeated direct messages to cottagegoers to stay home, to not use your cottage to isolate. And then uh, the next week on Mother's Day, news came out 
uh, that he spent Mother's Day with his wife and his four daughters, two of whom do not live in the house, making that a gathering of six, which is more than the emergency order that limits gatherings to five allows. By the way, that order was just extended to June. He did come out and say on questioning that there were no husbands, no boyfriends, no partners. It was a mom's only affair, only direct family, but then seemed to say that people should only visit immediate family and that people needed to use their judgment and seemed to kind of maybe suggest that gatherings over five were okay. So kind of contradicting the, at least the emergency order advice and maybe putting, uh, Dr. David Williams in a bit of a tough spot trying to defend it. So just curious, like, are are people going to care about this? Do we care about this? Does this matter? Yeah, I think people are going to care about this um, because politicians don't have a good reputation um, on the uh, do as I say, not as I do uh, type of front. And that's what the general public tends to hate the most about public figures is when they don't um, you know, follow their own rules or their own advice that they give to other people or they're being hypocrites in public. Um, this will fit and remind people of what they thought of Doug Ford before the crisis started. And obviously the opposition mm-hmm. parties are going to make sure that um, people remember this uh, after the crisis is over. Yeah, I agree. I think people are paying pretty close attention. Everyone's anxious to get out and like, you know, how many grandparents haven't met their new you know, uh, grand mm-hmm. kids yet, or have, you know, people who are used to seeing their, um, parents or, or, um, extended family much more often than obviously they have been. Um, and, you know, or, you know, feeling guilty that they've been doing it, you know, against the orders. So I just think like, there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in it. And I thought it was really poorly handled the way he was just like, oh, shucks. Like, yeah, I guess we use your judgment. Like, um, for something that feels so personal to a lot of people. So um, I agree with Alvin. I thought it was a, a really big mistake. Yeah, no, I mean, like Doug Ford's strength in the beginning of COVID was actually that he seemed to be able to weirdly emotionally connect with people. Like he would, you know, like he would say that he knew it was hard. He sort of seized on issues that were making people upset, like, you know, price gouging and all of those kinds of things. And in some ways, like, you know, like nothing that he did is a crime, but it's sort of like this is just a nice reminder for, you know, those of us that are hoping to be able to defeat him in a couple of years that we're not dealing uh, with a mastermind. Like, you know, you can hire a contractor for your cottage. You're the premier of Ontario. Like, you probably don't even need to arrange that yourself. No, most people Um, have neighbors that will go check on your pipes for you. And or honestly, after, send a staffer, even if you're not like, uh, even that that's inappropriate. We know that, you know, like. And so like, yeah, there's no way it's like just not possible for him to visit his cottage discreetly. Even if that's like, I, like I got to check on the pipes myself kind of guy. After you get in trouble for the cottage, maybe be like extra careful about the gatherings. And I feel like he's just sort of like trying to adopt this like, ah, shucks mentality about it. The thing that has really perplexed me about it, you know, sort of after these kind of two stories that I think are probably going to piss people off, the party seems to really be trying to sell the personality of Doug Ford with that cheesecake picture, which I am obsessed with. Can we talk for a second about cheesecake? It was it was cute. <laughs> it was cute. I won't deny it. Although it, it did you see just recently it came out that that's also not his house that that's like his brother's uh, house. Oh, interesting. Just adding well, more also, places that Doug Ford is going that is not. Anyway, it it also seems like a campaign type of gimmick more than a you know mid crisis type of thing to do. 
but mm. I I get the the crisis aspect of it because it's like I don't know like he's maybe saying like stay home and bake um or something like that i don't know like if people I are think that was also his message in high school wasn't it <laughs> uh, allegedly 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 there was there's the quip um, but yeah like, you know it's a good quip when it ends with there's the quip <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I personally think some of this Oshuk stuff is going to work. I think we uh, are probably skewed toward reactions of people who already were questioning Doug Ford and might not uh, ever think of voting for him again, even if they think he's done a relatively good job. And so while this will remind some of those people, I think within his voting base, a lot of people are going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, like, yeah, I mean, he, he wanted to see his daughters. Like, that's because he's a good family man. And, you know, how many of us haven't, like, bent the rules of quarantine a little bit, which would go right along with some of the polling that suggests that people's uh, preferences on the political spectrum have a pretty significant correlation with how seriously they take some of these quarantine rules. So yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah I, I don't, I don't see this uh, being uh, creating outrage across the political spectrum by any means. No, I, I am and in I the mood say, for cheesecake now though. Yes. And <laughs> I, um, I would prefer cheesecake that's not Doug Ford's cheesecake because I will note that he appears to have burned the cheesecake, <laughs> like the cake part of it, quite badly. They, they, they zoomed in on the picture. However, on like the more serious point that you're making, Alexi, I think that that's true. And I actually will confess that I think like the image of him being a nice guy and who is like kind of folksy works way better for him and looks way better on him than the kind of like slash and burn, you know, the image that they were peddling before, like if to turn but, that around, like that will have legs for them. Yeah, I agree. And this is like now just a completely partisan, like bitter comment. But like, imagine if Kathleen Wynne had baked a cheesecake in the middle of a quarantine, like the reaction would not be the same. Like, let's just be real, right? Like, oh, there's a yeah. there's a huge layer of, like, folksy charm forgiveness that gets layered on top of um, how people perceive him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, one last story I want to touch on quickly before we go. And actually, I want it, – it's, it's really small. It's not a big story. But I it did remind me of some of our experience at the Ministry of Education. So Stephen Lecce, uh, the Minister of Education, recently released a video saying that all proms, graduations are important life milestones. And that because of this, he sent a memo to school boards encouraging them to reschedule and not cancel these events. So everyone, despite the quarantine and despite the pandemic, could experience these moments in some kind of way. This prompted a bit of backlash from educators and trustees um, saying that this was kind of giving some kids false hope, that scheduling these events isn't possible at this point, given where we are in the recovery. Um, so I don't know, like, I kind of actually see what the government is doing and agree that as we enter prom season, telling kids that, you know, it could happen eventually might be a nice thing to do. Um, but it also feels a bit, I feel a bit for the school boards who have no ability to actually execute this or answer parent student questions or do anything about this memo. And it strikes me as the province kind of trying to use its pulpit to set an expectation that it's actually the boards that will be held accountable to. And I remember they didn't like it when we did it. Uh, they're sure not going to like it when the PCs do. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess the same question as before. Should people care about it? Do we care about it? Does it matter? Yeah, I have a harder time getting worked up about this one. I'm kind of like, meh, whatever. Like, I thought, you know, it's a nice sentiment to your point. Like, is it kind of jamming the school boards a bit who have, even if they wanted to reschedule at this moment, like, have no 
functional ability to like you know go book a hall or whatever um you know so it's a bit disrespectful but like the sentiment was nice um so i i don't know i'm 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 neutral to meh on it I mean, I'm more interested in whether or not we're actually going back to school, although I think everybody knows that we're not. I don't know why they just don't come out and say it. I think that would be more meaningful and useful for uh, students and teachers to know at this point. Um, Although I also just finished, uh, actually, three days ago, I finished my last course and I'm done my master's degree. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, They uh, pushed back our convocation to the fall. So, you know, I'm I'm sure these things are going to happen at some point. I don't really know what the point of uh, of Minister Lecce's tweet or message was going to be other than he likes putting on the sweater vest and, and recording videos <laughs> with soft music. I don't know. Sam, I will say that your uh, meh reaction to this uh, may disappoint some of your fans on EDU Twitter. They're, some of them are very worked up about it. But yeah, I, sorry, yeah, I mean, sorry, I, everybody. Maybe the fact <laughs> that he had the Fuji's album behind him when he had his sweater vest on war- warmed me a little to him. <laughs> <laughs> It's killing us softly, all of us. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was that was like that was also a quip. <laughs> I, I, I like polit- politically. I I sort of think like the politics of being the prom is canceled. We don't know when it's going to be. Everyone stay in your home. It's sad times now. Um, like that's not going to uh, make anyone. It, that doesn't make anything really better, and it doesn't make anyone happier. You know, it's not going to certainly not going to appeal to the teens, but. Doug Ford and Stephen Lecce also don't appeal to the teens. So, you know, we're... I'm also like, but uh, whatever. I just, now that I'm thinking <laughs> about it more for 10 seconds, like if we're not allowed to have big gatherings like that in, until say like, you know, January, wouldn't it be kind of weird to like re get together with your class who you haven't seen in like a full year, but maybe, maybe it will be fine. I don't know. Whatever. I don't care. If you stayed in your, in your house and you actually haven't left your hometown because you're going to university or college online, then maybe you've actually just been partying with these people for like months and it's like, you know, just another large gathering yeah, just, you know, I'm in fancy clothes. I mean, that's I feel like point. they missed. An, I mean, he, I think he missed an opportunity. I mean, he's the minister of education for the largest province. He should have done something like a John Krasinski show where he got a bunch of Canadian musicians and artists together, uh, get the Arkells to play something online, and have you know a digital prom of some kind and hosted by the minister. I don't know. I think that would have been something that uh, uh, would have gotten them some points. Speaking of the Leche hating Twitter, of which it's a very specific Twitter niche, um, uh, did you all see that he posted this picture of him on a Zoom call with the class, which, you know, he's been pushing for this synchronous learning, but then he posted it with all the kids' faces in full first and, and last names and, yes. and, then, and then had to take it down. Like, what a weird thing not weird like what a ridiculous thing to do like that's literally the number one issue that teachers have been flagging is like the privacy and security of like screenshots of synchronous learning and then he just goes and does it himself it's like (laughs) anyway it's like he never went to public school i don't know (laughs) oh there's a quip (laughs) the third quip of the day maybe we should quip while we're ahead guys (laughs) oh god there's another quip Quip fun. All right, wrap it up before this goes downhill from here. I'm going to wrap this up quickly. <laughs> oh, no. On that note. All right, call it a day. I'm, I'm, I'm and that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. 
as we tweeted yesterday, this pod is coming a day late because, I don't know, it's just like I had a really weird day the other day and couldn't find it in me to edit a podcast uh, and just being real of it. Like the lockdown and the isolation and the quarantine kind of affects your productivity, but it is a beautiful day today. Gonna get outside, lots of motivation to keep this going for you. Next week, we will be back with an interview with Alex Mazur. We'll be talking about retirement security in Ontario. Really excited about that. We'll have some more news for you. Gonna be talking about healthcare and some other stuff in the coming weeks. Ontario Loud is Sam Andry, Grumatel Kapoor, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, and myself, Chris Martin. Our volunteers are Harmon Mundy and Aisha Anwar. You can reach us at, at Ontario Loud on Twitter or at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. We will see you next week.